For now, we're going to begin this fourth lesson on baptism. I have to say that one of the practical goals of this Bible study series on baptism is to better understand the Christian practice of water baptism. That's one of like the tangible, practical end goals that we have. Like, why do we do this? Why do we do this ritual of dunking people under water? What does it signify? What role is that meant to play in our lives? Is that just for the beginning of the Christian life and then it's pretty much irrelevant? Or what's the place of baptism, the significance of this thing we do? And by the end of this series, we're going to aim to answer those and many other practical questions about baptism. In fact, it's been my design that in the future, someone who has not been baptized can listen to this series online and learn a lot about baptism just in their preparation. If they want to learn more, this can be an ongoing resource to learn what the Bible says about baptism. And that's what we're after. But in that very study, we learned that the Bible says more about baptism than just water baptism. And that's really where we've began with the other forms and aspects of baptism in the New Testament, what those mean, what those signify. And it's actually helping us lay a foundation for baptism. And we'll see when we come to water baptism, it'll, the foundation we've laid will pay dividends. And so we're first trying to figure out what baptism signifies in its other forms. And along these lines, we began with the most significant forms of baptism in the New Testament, namely baptism in Christ and baptism in the Holy Spirit. Those were lessons one and two. Those are absolutely fundamental to the symbol of water baptism. Last week was a bit of a a detour. We're covering a Pentecostal baptism and also that one reference to baptism for the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Just a little, you know, one-off studies there. You can get that from last week's lesson. But now we're we're back to, back on track here in a sense, moving forward. And we're going to dip our toes into water baptism this evening, pun intended. Not that clever, but, you know, throw it in there. But even with water baptism, you do have to make a distinction, though, between the baptism of John and the baptism of the church. They appear the same, but they are different. They're not the same. And it can be a little confusing because you read the Old Testament, there's no baptism. You turn the first page of the New Testament, first couple pages, and you're encountering this practice of baptism pretty quick. But it's John the Baptist baptism, and that is not the same as the baptism we read about in the book of Acts for the church, for example. And there's some pieces we need to fit together to understand that. There are similarities with this baptism practice that was not started by John. He just, he was prominent in doing it. And there's some continuity between that baptism and the church. The outer form is pretty similar. Like the the outward practice is going to look the same. You know, we're dunking people underwater. But why are we doing that? What does it signify It's important to understand the unique role played by John and his practice of water baptism. In a way, it serves as an archetype of the church's water baptism. But the meaning or significance of baptism gets transformed by Christ and the church. And so the reason we baptize, although it might look the same, I guess it's not the River Jordan, but the forms might be similar, but the reason is going to be quite different. And we need to understand that. Just studying John's baptism in and of itself, that's enough. That's valuable. That's going to teach us more about Christ, the coming of the Messiah. That's enough significance just by itself. That's great. But it also is going to help us learn more about the church's baptism by way of contrast. 
by looking at what John's baptism was not, we're already going to start to learn a little bit more about what the church's water baptism is, just by that way of contrast. So that, that's good as well. So for most of our time tonight, in lesson four, we're going to be studying the baptism of John. But I think we'll have enough time at the tail end to add in another form of baptism called baptism in, in fire or the baptism of fire, which will be mentioned in, in the verse tonight that we'll be looking at. I mentioned a long time ago, scripture mentions at least seven different types of baptism and baptism of fire is one of those. What does that mean? It actually comes in, in a context of John's baptism, or at least he's when he talks about it. And it's a good place to kind of give that aside. Let's deal with it, talk about it real quick and understand it as we keep moving along here. So that's our plan. Lesson four, baptism of John and baptism of fire. Let's begin with the baptism of John. Our goal is to understand the baptism of John. That cannot be totally separated from the person of John. So we need to be a little bit reminded of just the person, the ministry, the significance of John the Baptist as some background context here. Let's start with his own birth narrative. So you can turn to Luke 1. That John's birth narrative precedes Christ's birth narrative in Luke chapter 1. Make her over to Luke 1. We'll start verse 13 in a second. Luke records the birth narrative of John the Baptist. His father was the priest. Zacharias, mother Elizabeth, they were barren. Angel announces to Zacharias, though, that the coming birth of their son, who will be called John, and the role he's going to play. Just some quick background, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be uh, filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So we know John is going to be set apart from birth. These words, particularly, I think it's verse uh, 15 indicates he's going to be taking a Nazarite vow. He'll be dedicated. That was likely the case. He's going to be a servant of the Lord uh, from birth, pretty much. He's, He's dedicated. He is set apart in God's plans and purposes for him. That's clear. Verse 16, he says, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Well, I thought the Jews already believed in God. Well, what's, what's going on here? But they weren't following the Lord their God. And, and this John, he's going to be turning them back to the way of the Lord. We will see. And then verse 17, it says, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You see that in verse 17, he's going to be a forerunner. Before whom? It says before him. He's going to be a a forerunner before him. Who's the him in this context? Well, the nearest antecedent is verse 16, the Lord their God. He will be a forerunner before the Lord their God. And that is Jesus. You look at the prophecy in Isaiah and Malachi, this forerunner is going to make ready the way of Yahweh. And Malachi says God, God depicts himself as coming. He will be coming. 
Make ready the way of Yahweh who's coming to redeem and to judge. But we know that's fulfilled in Christ who is going to be Yahweh incarnate, God incarnate. Speaking of the spirit and power of Elijah, that's from the final verses of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. The Old Testament ends with the promised return of Elijah before the day of the Lord. And John the Baptist is the initial fulfillment of that prophecy. He's not Elijah reincarnate, but he comes as a type of Elijah who is making ready the way of the Lord and his first coming. Now, nothing here mentions baptism so far, but as we will see shortly, John's baptism is fundamentally tied to this work of turning the hearts of the people back to God. That's, that's it in a nutshell. It's turning the hearts of the people back to God and thereby preparing the way of the Lord, the way of Christ as he comes, that he will be received by the people. Now jump down to verse 76. Later, after he's born, Zacharias prophesies about John and he says prophetically, verse 76, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Zacharias confirms John's role prophetically. He's going to prepare the way by turning their hearts and preaching forgiveness of sins and salvation. Verse 80 ends it and says, And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance in Israel. John was not in the public eye until his ministry came, much like Jesus. But he didn't grow up with Jesus. He lived apart in the deserts. It's possible that his parents dedicated him in a Nazarite vow, and he lived in a small community in the deserts. We really don't know. But he was secluded in the deserts until the time came for his public ministry. Now, let's read about that now. Let's keep going. This is kind of background, but Luke 3. Let's turn to Luke 3. After the birth narrative of Jesus, now we're fast-forwarding to when they're all, they're all grown up, and John begins his ministry before Jesus begins his ministry. Luke 3, verse 1, just gives us a time reference, 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. So in that year, verse 2, it says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So the word of God comes to John. It was time for his public ministry to begin. We learn later in John chapter 1, we'll see that it was God himself who told John to go baptize people. He got his commission prophetically from God himself. We'll see that later. Let's read verses 3 through 6. It says of John, He came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Just as Zacharias, his father, prophesied, John's going to make ready the way of the Lord by preaching this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this fits the Old Testament prophecy of the forerunner as well, that John, he's now baptizing people in the Jordan, indicating his baptism indicates a repentance of sin, a turning away from sin and a returning to God 
receiving his forgiveness by his mercy. But even John knows it was revealed to him that there's going to be one coming after him who's mightier than him, and he's going to do a work greater than him. One who is coming after him, who who would be the actual Lamb of God, and who would be the one who is actually going to take away the sins of the people. As John would later identify Jesus, the Lamb of God, who he's the one who actually takes your sins away. And the work he's going to do, and we'll see the baptism he performs, is going to be different than John's baptism and much greater than John's baptism. John's mission was like that of a courier to an ancient monarch. The courier would proclaim the coming of the king, and he would organize the citizens to prepare the roads and the pathway for the arrival, and even just the passage of the king through their town. And John is doing that for Jesus, but in a spiritual sense, that the people need to prepare their hearts for the coming of King Jesus, that they might receive him when he comes. And they do this by repentance, in preparing the hearts of the people for the coming of the king. That's akin to the work of repentance. People need to recognize their sin and their waywardness, and turn away from their sins and just return to God via repentance. Repentance and faith. Now I'll just read for you, in the same context, Matthew adds a parallel in his gospel, I'll just read it for the sake of time. It's Matthew 3, 4 through 6. It's right in the same context of John's baptism ministry beginning. It says, now John himself, this is Matthew 3, 4, had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That has significance, meaning that John dressed just like Elijah. That was on purpose. That was his prophetic plan. Verse 5 says, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan as they confessed their sins. So again, John's water baptism was for repentance, returning to God, where they would receive forgiveness by his mercy. And it was an outward sign of an inward change. That's consistent. It communicated identification with John's message of returning to God with all your heart. You have to understand that to be baptized by John was a rebuke. You are receiving a rebuke to be baptized by John in a good way, but it was a rebuke. It meant, it meant this was, these were all Jews and only Jews who were being baptized by John, as far as we know. But it meant that in humility, you were accepting his message of repentance, his message. You have strayed, You've not been loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You need to repent, turn from your sins, return to God, and and be cleansed. And if you're getting baptized by John, it means you're acknowledging, even though you're a Jew by birth, that's not enough. You have strayed. You don't serve God with all your heart. You, You do sin. You're wayward. You need to turn away from that and return to God for cleansing, forgiveness, and restoration. And so in many ways, John's baptism was a type of conversion. We might say a a rededication. Because these were Jews. These were the people of God. They They all believed in God, but they weren't following God. They were, in a sense, coming to a type of conversion. Best way to think about it is that there's the way of the Lord, right? And when the Messiah comes, he's going to be on the way of the Lord. That's where you're going to find him, on the way of the Lord. These people were Jews. 
they had the way of the Lord, but they weren't walking on the way of the Lord. They were, they've gone another way. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. They were wayward. And so John's mission is, you've got to get back on the way. Repent and return. In all these Old Covenant terms, though, get back on the way. So that when the Messiah comes, you're going to run into him. That's John's ministry. He doesn't know who he is or when he's coming. But he's just getting people back on the way of the Lord. So that when he comes, they're going to bump into him and receive him. Because he's not going to come in the way of the world. If you're in the way of the world, you're not going to like this Messiah. And you'll reject him. And for those whose hearts were truly turned back, they would come to receive the Messiah. He's clearly on the way of the Lord. Now, a little further background might help here with proselyte baptism. Proselyte baptism that preceded John's baptism. That just means like converts, right? And before, John wasn't the first person to baptize, although it's absent as a formal practice in the Old Testament. Somewhere between the Old and New Testament, it became a thing, baptism, from the Jew, or by the Jews, that some had been practicing baptism as a purification and initiation rite for Gentile converts. And as far as we know, and it was only really done for Gentile converts, proselytes. Only Gentiles were baptized as they converted to Judaism. And most likely the rite of baptism traces its roots to the purification washings of Jews in the Old Testament, that these Gentiles, you're filthy, you're unclean. If you're really going to convert to Judaism and, and kind of run with the Jews, this is a ceremonial washing that you need to, to come be with us, something like that. But John's baptism was different, though. It was different in that he was not baptizing Gentiles. He was baptizing Jews. That was new. That was not done. That was unheard of. Jews, they're already the people of God. In their mind, they're already on the way of the Lord. Why why would they need to be baptized? They're not converts or proselytes. They don't need to be converted, do they? But in fact, yes, they do. Because as we know, salvation is not by birth. Not by first birth. It's not by lineage. It's not enough to be a physical descendant of Abraham. That doesn't actually save you. And so even Jews needed a baptism of repentance and conversion. This actually explains the next context. You're still in Luke 3. Let's just keep going. Look down to verse 7 right after. It says, so he began saying to the crowds who are going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's a very secret sense of message right there. Like they're, they're just loving it. They're going to keep coming. But actually the parallel in Matthew's gospel makes clear. John was saying this only specifically to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This wasn't his broad message, although he certainly was preaching repentance for the wrath is coming. But he was saying this in context to directly to the Pharisees and Sadducees as they were coming to be baptized by him. And he refused to baptize them. Verse 8. He says, therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And this is what the the Pharisees were saying, by the way. You know, why did the Pharisees 
and Sadducees go out to see John. Had nothing to do with repentance. Remember, that was the purpose of his baptism, primarily for repentance, returning to God. They didn't need that. In their mind, like, we don't need to repent of anything. We are, we're righteous. We keep the law. You're godless people or wicked people. Like, we, we're the ones actually keeping this law. So they're, they're not going for repentance. They're not claiming to repent. In their eyes, they have no need to repent. They're descendants of Abraham. They're already God's chosen people. And these guys, the Pharisees especially, are most devout. So why would they need to return to God? In their mind, they never left God. That's what they're thinking. Now, we know, of course, this is just self-righteousness. But they went to John to basically ride the coattails of his popularity. This was a massive movement. Everybody, it seems, from Judea was going out to see John. And they, you know, the people were moving. That They got to kind of be a part of that because they, they like the praise of people. And they need to, you know, be a part of this, at least be associated with this movement. But John rebukes them for their hypocrisy, their lack of repentance. This foreshadows the same conflict Jesus would have with these people for the same reasons. Their self-righteousness, their lack of repentance. They're thinking that being a descendant of Abraham is enough to save you. And John had all those conflicts with them long before Jesus would. Not too long, but you know, long enough. But being a physical descendant of Abraham, that doesn't make you a child of God. It's not enough. Salvation is not by first birth, but by second birth. And the problem is that judgment is coming. So if you're relying on your first birth for salvation, you're, you're in trouble. You're in peril. You need to repent, return, uh, believe in God, and, and uh, receive the forgiveness of your sins. And that's his message. Wrath is coming. He says the acts is already laid at the foot of the tree. It's just a matter of time. And all those who do not bear the fruit of repentance, they prove they're bad trees, and they're simply thrown into the fire. And so he he seeks to convict them and convict all people of their need to repent and return. Now, what does the fruit of repentance look like? And for the sake of time, you can read 11 through 14 on your own. That's where uh, Luke alone records the words of John, who gives some illustrations of repentance. Really good stuff. But you have to realize, you know, John's ministry was huge. There was a ton of excitement and expectation around John. No one had seen a prophet like this in hundreds of years. There had not been a spiritual revival like this in hundreds of years. So people were wondering. Let's jump down to verse 15 for the sake of time. It says, now while... The people were in a state of expectation and all the people were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. There was messianic expectation in the culture and they're wondering, you know, could it be John? There's so much movement and activity. Could it be John? But no, he consistently says, verse 16, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me. Or, but one is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not fit to untie the, th- the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then it says, so with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. Now, we're going to talk about baptism of fire uh, shortly. 
For now, we're just focusing on John. And here it is. Verse 16 helps make clear what John's baptism is by what it's not. Verse 16, it's pretty clear what his baptism does not do by way of contrast. It's, It's not baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's not his baptism, and it's not baptism of fire either. We learn by, by this contrast, you know, what the Messiah is going to do, John does not do. The Messiah, when he comes, he's greater than John, and he's, he's going to actually baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what makes Christ's baptism so much greater and so much different. Only the Messiah is going to do that. John doesn't baptize in the Spirit. Now, here's where you need to apply everything we learned about baptism in the Spirit uh, two weeks ago. But in short, this tells us that John's baptism was squarely in the Old Covenant. This was the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets and the, the final ministry before the Messiah, literally making way, uh, making ready the way of the Lord as he came. His baptism was not the same as that of Christ or the church, as we will continue to see. His was a baptism of preparation and expectation. Christ, a baptism of fulfillment. In John's baptism, we see people re-identifying with God as their father in anticipation of the coming Messiah. But in Christ's baptism or, or the church's baptism, we are now explicitly identifying with the Messiah himself. Who, he's been revealed. John ministered in the shadows, but Christ and the full gospel has been revealed. His death, burial, resurrection. We are being baptized into Christ himself. That was our first lesson, right? Baptism in Christ. We're identifying with the Messiah who's come and been revealed. And John himself understood that, you know, the Messiah's baptism is no longer the age of shadows. It's going to have the full revelation of the gospel and will be all the more greater by just who he is, what he does, and the Spirit's coming as well. So in a way, you can think of John like a tiller. He came before Jesus to till the soil of the heart's of Israel. He's pulling weeds via repentance. He's just getting hearts ready and prepared to receive Christ. And even threw down some seed, right? He's preaching the gospel old covenant style, but Jesus would be the one to send forth the spirit and really enable these hearts, cause these hearts to now come alive in mass on the people. There's other passages we could go to from here just further our understanding of John's baptism a little bit more. Now, our intention is not to study every passage where John is mentioned, mostly focused on the significance of his baptism here. So let's, let's keep going here, study a little bit more about John's baptism. And in this case, let's, let's bring in John baptizing Jesus. And that was an aspect of John's baptism, right? So let's go to Matthew 3, because he gives us the longer account. You could read it here in Luke 3, but let's just go back to Matthew 3. I'm going to make a few more points about John's baptism here. Matthew 3, 13 through 17. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? I trust many of you know, you know, why did John try and refuse to baptize Jesus? 
Well, what did John's baptism primarily signify? Repentance, right? Turn from your sins. Get back on the way of the Lord. But John knew Jesus needed no such thing. Jesus did not need to repent and return to God. And that's true. He had no need for what that baptism signified when it comes to his person. However, verse 15, but Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. We know this was part of God's messianic plan. The Messiah came to save his people from their sins, right? How's the Messiah going to do that? By this term we call substitution, he will be their sin bearer. He will take the sins of the people on himself, the Lamb of God. He will be their substitute sacrifice, pay for their sins, take them away, right? He will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John later testifies. Christ himself, though, he's sinless. He has no sin to pay for. But he's going to identify with sinners, take on their sin debt in full and pay for it. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And Christ would come and he, he, part of his mission was to identify with sinners. That's why he had to be fully man to identify with man. He had to be fully God to sufficiently pay for all their sins. But he had to be genuinely man to identify with man as this perfect substitute. And this explains why Jesus submitted to John's baptism. To fulfill all righteousness, he needed to identify with the sinners he came to save. This is just part of and in line with his atonement, his redemptive plan. Jesus identifies with mankind and his role as the substitute sacrifice. And that, that fits. Remember, we've been saying from the beginning, this word baptism, in a general sense, communicates, remember, identification. It communicates identification. Baptism in Christ. We're identifying with Christ. And here, baptism, uh, this baptism we're speaking of, Jesus being baptized by John. Jesus is identifying with what John's baptism signified, namely the need for forgiveness of sins. And as he's going to be the sin bearer, he has no sins to repent of, but he's got some sins he's going to have to pay for. Not his own, all of ours. And so this is the Christ identifying with those whom he came to save. Now, let's read verse 16 and 17. It says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And now we have... After the baptism, God himself takes this opportunity to identify Jesus as the Messiah. This, as you know, marks the beginning of Christ's ministry, but there's greater significance to this than you might think, which John himself realized and tells us about the identification of the Messiah. Let's turn now to John 1. We're going to find another aspect that you don't really talk about or hear much about, but there's a, there's a bigger picture purpose to John's baptism ministry, and it's to identify the Messiah. Let's read about this in John 1. 
Similar context, you know, verses 19 through 23. You've got the people excited about John, wondering if he's the Christ. But he says, no, I'm just the forerunner. Verses 24 through 28. John baptizes as a means of making ready the way of the Lord. He's, he's going to explain more. Let's look at verse 29. This takes place the day after Christ's baptism. They're still there. This is the next day. Verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That John identified Jesus about the, uh, as the one about whom he spoke. He said, I'm, I, I'm making ready the way of the Lord. And now he's identifying that that's the one, by the way. That there he is. There's, there's the one I'm making ready for. Look at verse 30, though. He says, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. That was John's message from a while ago. Now he's identifying, yeah, that's Jesus. That, that's the guy I was talking about. But, you know, John is, he's six months older than Jesus. Yeah, he says Jesus existed before him and is of a higher rank. Now, John is understanding that Jesus as the Messiah, he's, he's not just human. There's something more going on here. He goes down to verse 34. He's the son of God. This is the eternal son of God come down. And John gives a little window into this, that the pre-existence of the Christ now in the form of Jesus. Look at verse 31. This is very interesting. Verse 31 says, as John speaking, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. You see that? Isn't that interesting when you think about that? John and Jesus were cousins, but they did not grow up together. As far as we know, John was isolated in the desert. We have no knowledge of them ever coming together before that. Could have been. We have no knowledge of that. And he did not recognize Jesus, at least not as the Messiah. But John reveals in this verse, though, there is another purpose for his whole baptism ministry. You could ask the question, hey, John, why did you come baptizing in water? Like, why are you doing this? What's his answer in verse 31? I came baptizing in water, he says, so that he might be manifested to Israel. That there's, a, there's an aspect to his whole mission that's just to reveal the identity of the Messiah. Not only is he making ready the way of the Messiah, or making ready the way of the Messiah, but he understands that his ministry is going to culminate in identifying the Messiah and his coming. Feels like we need more explanation. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 32 and 33. He says more. John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And he remained upon him. He's testifying of Christ's baptism the day before, right? Verse 33. He says, I did not recognize him. He says it again. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. That verse alone gives us information we don't know elsewhere. Like, why is John baptizing people in water? Who told him to do that? Well, this verse makes clear 
God told him. God sent him. Some, something that's not recorded that God prophetically revealed. Maybe it's through that same angel Gabriel. We don't know. But God prophetically revealed to John, hey, your ministry, it's time to go here. Get to the Jordan. Start baptizing people in water for repentance of sins. Oh, and by the way, you're going to keep doing this. And eventually you're going to see, you know, the spirit descending and remaining on someone. And that's the one you're pointing to. You keep baptizing until that happens. That's the culmination of your ministry, though. You're doing this in part, in part to prepare the people's hearts, right? We get that. But you see how there's another facet, the bigger picture to John's baptizing ministry. This is, this is huge in God's timeline of the Messiah's ministry. You're going to identify the Messiah himself and the beginning of his ministry, which is going to be greater. It's going to eclipse yours. You're going to fade into the background when he comes. But you keep baptizing people until the Spirit comes on someone and remains. That's the one who's going to baptize in the Spirit. And so we learn in a sense that John didn't know who the guy was going to be. We're just left to mystery. Did he, how well did he know Jesus? Did they, did they grow up together? It, it does not seem to be the case. Did he know there were cousins? Yeah, I assume. But Christ, before his messianic ministry, did not reveal himself in any way uh, to the world as the Messiah. So John, we, we presume, as he says, he just didn't know. And he's going to keep baptizing, it seems. Just keep baptizing people, person after person, thousands of people, until eventually he sees the Spirit of God resting on someone. Then he's going to know. I didn't recognize him, but the Spirit came and remained on that person. So I, that's, the, that's the guy. That's what God told me. That's the one. And, and he would know that's the Messiah he was preparing the way for. And not just the Messiah, he would know that's the divine Messiah. As John says in verse 34, he says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And you know John's gospel, that's, that's a title of deity. He's the Son of God. So we learn here, part of the purpose of the baptism of John was to literally identify the Messiah. The Messiah, like he said, part of his, his purpose was to, uh, that the Messiah would be manifested to Israel. That's another aspect of making re- uh, ready the way of the Lord by identifying when he comes, here he is. And John at least gives his voice as a witness and as a, as a testifier. That's the one. I testify. I've seen him. I saw that happen. This is the Messiah. And so it's actually probably bigger than you think. John's testimony of Jesus as the Messiah, that, that's God's prophetic testimony of Jesus as the Messiah. Well, there's more we could say and study about John. You know, for a very short period after this, both John and Jesus were baptizing people, making disciples, although Jesus never baptized his disciples did, as we know, as John 3. But very shortly thereafter, John was arrested imprisoned, and then beheaded. But he, he had no qualms about that part because John knew full well that it was, it was God's plan for John and his ministry to decrease as the Messiah came on the scene and his ministry increased. But he was fine with that. But John knew he, he wasn't building his kingdom. He was not making his disciples. They were only his to the degree that when the Messiah came, they're going to transfer their membership over, right, to, to Jesus. As soon as they see the Messiah and learn about him, they're going to move right on over. 
John was fine with that. A great example, by the way. He's not building his own name. He's not seeking his own glory. He knew that he must increase, I must decrease. And that's what happened. With the coming of Christ, John's ministry would appropriately come to a completion and become obsolete, no longer needed really at all. That with, with the coming of Jesus comes the new covenant, the full revelation of God's salvation. Jesus, he starts making more disciples than John, but that, that's kind of the whole point. He's the, the greater one, and that, that's appropriate. Christ brings with him a, a new baptism, baptism in the Spirit, where that the same Spirit that rested upon him after the atonement, he's now going to send out on all of his people who will receive that Spirit, come to new life, be baptized in him, and uh, become part of this new church, the new covenant people of God. So we're going to see more and more this, how this ties into the church's water baptism, that the practice we have, which is not the same as John's baptism. That was preparation, Christ is fulfillment, Christ has come, that the gospel is complete, atonement has been made, and he's now sending out that spirit in full. John's ministry is truly obsolete. It's the capstone to the old covenant, but the new has come, the old things have passed away. So there's a little background intro study for you on, on the baptism, baptism of John, and uh, for what it's worth. Now, we have got a little bit of time left here. Let's turn our sights to this baptism of fire. We'll have just enough time to get through this. Because we are trying to hit the, the highlights here of the different forms of baptism mentioned in the New Testament. Baptism in Christ, baptism in spirit, baptism for the dead, right? And uh, water baptism, John's baptism. Here we have baptism of fire. And it's, it's different from all these. This is a unique little metaphor for something. What? Well, let's find out. Baptism of fire. Let's go to Matthew 3. Go back to Matthew 3 one more time here. This is parallel to Luke 3, but we'll do Matthew 3. So we were just here. You already know the context. Ministry of John by the Jordan. It's a baptism of repentance, turning away from sins. The Pharisees come in verse 7, but he turns them away. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 10, they need to repent. But then John explains his baptism in contrast with the coming Messiah's baptism, right? And so he says, again, verse 11, that's the verse in question. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Here's uh, in the parallel verse, you know, this mention of baptism of fire in the New Testament. We've already spent a lot of time on baptism in the Holy Spirit. We've not addressed, and we can't ignore, what is this baptism of fire? Is that the same thing or something different? That's worth figuring out, right? Let's do that. It won't take long. So let's talk about fire baptism. The medium of this baptism is not water, It's not the Holy Spirit, it's fire. You're being immersed in fire, so to speak. What does that mean? Well, I should point out most Pentecostals, since last week we saw their different view of spirit baptism. Likewise, most of them simply group them together and say it's just the other side of spirit baptism. Fire baptism is spirit baptism. Some even take it to the next level and it's 
excuse me, it's a higher experience. You get the fire baptism. You're, you're really on fire now when you get the fire baptism. But that's not the case. And context is key. This is actually a good little example of studying the Bible in its context and how it, it just, it's going to tell you itself what it means. The context is crystal clear here. And that's how we interpret words and metaphors and all that. So going back to the context, Jesus, or rather John, he's rebuking the, the hypocritical Pharisees. They come to John for baptism as a show of self-righteousness, but they have no interest in genuine repentance. So go back to verse 7. He says to them, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? The point here is, already in the context is the mention of what? God's coming wrath. Okay, that's fine. Just file that away. God's wrath is coming. And uh, you need to repent and believe or you're going you're gonna to encounter that wrath. Okay? Now, go back to verse 10. This is the preceding verse to verse 11 where he says thereafter. He says, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Same word for fire. You need to repent. You need to bear the fruit of, the re- of repentance. And only those who bear that fruit, evidence they've been made good trees, they'll be saved. They'll enter the kingdom. Those who don't, well, you're like a bad tree. You've got nothing but bad fruit. You've not repented. And that tree gets cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a clear metaphor for what? Judgment. Right? And we know that for a fact as Christ himself would echo the, the exact same metaphor in Matthew 7 verse 19. And that undoubtedly refers there to God's judgment, God's coming judgment on those who bear bad fruit because they're bad trees. So already in the immediate context, even the verse before, with the same word, we have a reference to fire as God's judgment. Fire being used as a metaphor for God's coming judgment. Make sense? Pretty clear? Well, we can add to that the following verse. Like verse 12. The next breath, after he said, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He says this. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's talking about the Messiah here. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Winnowing fork, who's holding this thing? It's clearly the one who baptizes with Holy Spirit and fire. So it's the same figure. The one who's going to baptize you in fire in verse 12, he's pictured as a guy holding a winnowing fork, like a, like a big, a big uh, pitchfork. You got a pile of grain, right? You shove it in, you throw the wheat into the air. Maybe you're on top of a hill. There's a light breeze. And the grain's going to fall back down. The heavy heads of grain will fall back down, but the chaff that surrounds the grain is going to just float away into the air. And it's a means of separating the chaff, which you don't want to eat or digest, from the wheat kernels, which you can later pound into flour, do whatever you want to do. And so it's just, it's a picture of separation that is likewise used often by Jesus as a metaphor for judgment, a picture of the separation that comes before the judgment, that the Messiah will separate the wheat from the chaff, the goats from the sheep, or I'm sorry, the wheat from the tares, that's the the way Christ put it, and the wheat from the chaff is another one, the goats from the sheep. This is a 
uh, metaphor of separation and then judgment. The true believer will be gathered into the barn. He will be accepted and brought into the presence of the Messiah. But the false believer, the unrepentant, will be separated, rejected, and they're just good for the fire. They're, they're burnt up. And fire is often used in this metaphor. Fire, even unquenchable fire. And that phrase, unquenchable, in the Greek, you know the word, it's asbestos. The Greek word is asbestos. And it originally referred to quicklime. That's a mineral compound that burns when you add water. It's because of a chemical reaction. It looks like it's burning. And so it, it was known as this thing you, you can't put out by water. It's a type of fire, though it's not really a fire flame. But it was thought of as you can't put it out by water. It's an unquenchable fire. You add more water, you're just feeding the chemical reaction. It keeps burning. And that, that's kind of how it was used in the ancient world. What's ironic is later in history, the word asbestos was given the meaning of a fire that was incombustible, which is actually the, the opposite meaning. And that's how we think of asbestos today. It's like a fiber we use as a, a fire retardant or something fire resistant in building materials. But originally, it meant the opposite, an inextinguishable fire, a fire that just can't be put out. And the other occurrence of this word is Mark 9.43, where Christ himself refers to hell as unquenchable fire. So what's fire in verse 12? It's, again, no doubt that's used as a reference to hell, to judgment, and to, to the fires of hell, the unquenchable fire and judgment, the damnation that's coming on those who, who don't repent and believe. So you put together, there, there's really no doubt here that what is baptism and fire then? When the Messiah comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Are those the same things? They are not. They, they cannot be. And the context makes really crystal clear that when the Messiah comes, he's going to render judgment when he returns. He will separate the true from the false, the saved from the lost. The saved are those who've received what kind of baptism? Baptism of the Spirit. As we studied, that, that is akin to salvation. Only those who are saved receive the baptism of the Spirit. And vice versa, the baptism of, spirit, of the Spirit connote those who are saved. That's effectively a saving baptism. And those who have received that baptism, they're separated, they're accepted, they're brought in by God's grace, and they, they are not judged. They've been born again, and therefore they bear good fruit in keeping with repentance, the fruit of the Spirit. But the lost are those who have not received the Spirit. They're dead in their sins. They're guilty of rebellion. They bear bad fruit. They've not repented. And so the Messiah will separate those at the judgment and they will receive uh, the baptism of fire. It's a metaphor for judgment, for really the final judgment. And they will be immersed into the fire of God's wrath, so to speak. It's just simply speaking of judgment. And so we're asked to be baptized in the Spirit is to identify with the Spirit unto salvation to be baptized in fire, that's to identify with really God's wrath into damnation. And so we learn this is, this is one baptism you don't want. You do not want a part of the baptism of fire. It speaks of judgment coming upon those who do not repent. But the Messiah himself will administer. He will be the one sentencing and, and immersing these people, so to speak, into God's just wrath. And so therefore, uh, a takeaway for us, you should heed 
the message of John and of Jesus. We need to repent and believe. You need to repent and return to God. That's still the message, only now it's become crystallized in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you must repent and return through Jesus, and only through Jesus, if you are to escape the wrath to come. The, the, the Messiah has come through his death, burial, and resurrection. You need to go through that door if you are to be saved from the wrath to come. And so heed the message of them both, put together, turn from your sins, repent, humble yourself. God's a God of mercy, overwhelming mercy and compassion and forgiveness, but you must repent and return, cry out, and God will make you alive and and draw you to himself and give you the forgiveness of sins all by his grace, but it only comes to those who call on Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's how you are saved from the baptism of fire. That's how you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray you, you've all done that. You, you've heeded that message and you've received the right kind of baptism. Well, we're thankful that Jesus came, that he drank that cup of wrath for us. And in a way we can say we're thankful that he took the baptism of fire for us. In fact, we're out of time, but we'll get to it next week. There's another form of baptism called baptism of suffering. That's what we might label it as. And that's how Jesus himself speaks of his cross. Remember, he said, the cup I have to drink and the baptism I have to undergo. And we're going to find in a way he was taking this baptism of fire for us. He was drinking the cup of wrath. He was being immersed into God's wrath for us on the cross. So next week, we'll get into baptism of suffering. And we'll probably finally crack the door into just an understanding of now the church's water baptism. So we'll just keep moving. Look forward to that. Our time is up, though. Let us pray. God, we're gracious to you for for Christ, our Savior. And as we reflected this morning, and here we are drawing nearer to Easter, remembering with a heightened awareness of what his coming means for us, we, we give you thanks again, afresh this evening, as we pause and remember what his coming meant for us. We are thankful that we live on this side of the cross, and we can look back and see that the Messiah, that the promised one whom John came before, he has come. He's been identified. The Spirit came upon him and did not depart. And he came to do a work to save sinners, to be our substitute sacrifice, our sin bearer. And that work he did in full. It has been accomplished and finished. His death, his burial, his resurrection. But, and now by this work, we can be saved completely from the wrath to come. Even more made alive by the Spirit, and receive this eternal inheritance. This is good news. It's the good news John looked forward to in, in shadow form. We can look backwards upon it in fulfillment and just give you thanks. Let these truths guide our lives every day, impact us, make us a thankful people, and then make us a holy people, remembering that we were bought with a price and we are to, to give God glory with all of our lives, our obedience, our love, and now bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. May we be proven good trees by the new lives we get to enjoy by your spirit, Lord. These are rich truths, and pray now we just live them out and magnify you by doing so. Bless us as your people. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.